0: I looked at today's scripture lesson early this week, on Tuesday I think, and after reading it several times and feeling completely baffled by it, I texted Amy and I said, hmm, have you seen this week's scripture? She texted back saying she had not seen it yet but now she wasn't sure that she wanted to see it this is a difficult parable in fact several commentators i read say that it is by far the most difficult of all to explain and understand it made me think of jesus words to his disciples when he asked why when they asked him why he taught the crowds in parables. Jesus said to you, the disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the crowd, it has not been granted. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Well, when I read and reread this parable, I definitely felt like one of the crowd to whom it was not granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. I found it interesting that the Roman Emperor Julian, who ruled from 361 to 363, used this very parable, to argue for the inferiority of the Christian faith and to discredit Jesus. He later became known as Julian the Apostate. So what are parables and why did Jesus teach in parables? A parable is a simple story designed to teach or explain an idea or a moral or spiritual lesson. It comes from the Greek word parabole, which means to throw before or to throw alongside. So it is a sort of comparison. Parables can be found as far back as Greek and Roman times and were commonly used by Jewish rabbis. Jesus made such frequent use of parables, somewhere between 36 and 50 in the gospels, depending on who's counting. He made such frequent use that the word parable today is commonly associated with Jesus' teaching. Parables are stories drawn from ordinary life. They're stories about sheep or coins or weddings, or fig trees. They're used to illustrate or compare ideas. The point of the parable is to challenge the hearer to think more deeply and to point us in the direction of understanding how God works. Until the time of the Reformation, parables were almost exclusively interpreted allegorically. Perhaps the most famous example of allegorical interpretation is Origen, who was a scholar about 200 years after Christ, in his explanation of the Good Samaritan. You all know this parable. Well, according to the allegorical view, the man who is robbed represents Adam. Jerusalem is paradise, and Jericho is the world. The priest is the law, and the Levites are the prophets. The Samaritan, of course, is Christ. The donkey is Christ's physical body, which bears the burden of a wounded man. The wounds are his sins, and the inn where he is taken is the church. The Samaritan's promise to return is a promise of the second coming of Christ. How many of you read the parable that way? That's what I thought. For today, most scholars look at one primary lesson from each of the parables. For instance, the parable of the prodigal son is mostly about a loving father who is always ready to welcome his wayward son back with open arms. There are several reasons why Jesus taught using parables. First, they make difficult abstract concepts easier to understand. Many of his parables were about the kingdom of God. Comparing it to a mustard seed the smallest of all seeds, which grows into a tree with many branches, was an illustration which his hearers could understand. Parables are also memorable stories. Even if listeners didn't immediately grasp the intended message, they could remember the story, discuss it with others, and eventually figure out the meaning. And finally in Hebrew culture where the religious leaders the Pharisees were all about strictly following the rules Jesus parables talked about what God's kingdom was like and about God's love to whom it is granted to whom is it granted to know the mysteries of God's kingdom The parables were not intended to be obscure and only understood by a select few. Some followers in the crowd were undoubtedly there for the show, perhaps hoping to witness some remarkable miracle. But for those who had an earnest desire to follow Christ and to understand God's kingdom, the true meaning of the parables Could be found. Jesus said, If you ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. If we are even going to begin to understand today's parable, we need a quick mini course on the economics of Roman occupied Galilee in the first century. Don't go to sleep. Rich landlords and rulers were loan sharks, using exorbitant interest rates to amass more land and to disinherit peasants from their family land in direct violation of biblical covenantal law. The law said that for Jews, Charging interest on loans was forbidden because it exploited the poor who were vulnerable. The rich man or Lord, along with his steward steward or debt collector, were both exploiting desperate peasants. Wealthy landlords in Jesus' day created ways to charge interest under other guises, often hiding interest by rolling it into the principal. According to New Testament scholars, the hidden interest rates appear to have been about 25% for money and 50% for goods. The manipulative steward was probably extracting his own cut on top of the 50% that went to the landlord. When he reduced the payments, the steward may have simply been forgiving his own cut of the interest, or he may have been doing what the law of God commands, namely forgiving all of the hidden interest in the contract. To ingratiate himself with the debtors Perhaps he had them change the amount they owed on their bills to exactly the amount they had borrowed, no interest. If the rich landlord was a Jew, and we don't know from the text, he would know the Torah teaching against charging interest. The rich man suddenly recognizing that he had at least needed to appear to be observing the covenant laws, then commended his steward. This is a difficult parable, and the challenge is knowing where Jesus wants us to side. There are several possibilities, and perhaps wrestling with it and trying to puzzle it out is all that we can do. This parable though, raises the question of how we practice love of our neighbor in economic relationships, especially in the midst of unjust structures. What is important is to understand that Jesus wanted to revive biblical covenantal economic life, that is, forgiving debts, and giving people new hope. The joy of the gospel is the joy of God's healing of relationships, including economic relationships. Jesus repeatedly warns that we cannot be disciples while accumulating wealth at the expense of the poor. Do you think there might be a message in that for us today? May it be so.
1: Thank you, Dan. This, the more you know is our effort at a little biblical literacy, and it is helpful for me to think in terms of, well, maybe he wasn't being so dishonest if he was just forgiving how much he was overcharging And how wrong the system was for the wealthy to take care of the poor in such a way. So was it so dishonest? That's helpful. Dan's last word said something about our task is to wrestle with it and puzzle it out. I hope you'll take this home and wrestle with it and puzzle it out for yourselves. You just get to hear my wrestling and my puzzling in these next few minutes. I really don't remember when I've read more to prepare for a sermon than I did for this one. And almost every single commentary blog and journal article about this one parable begins with something like, wait, what? You've gotta be kidding me. The bottom line is this parable really makes no sense and doesn't seem like something Jesus would condone, much less tell himself as a vehicle for instruction Now, we can do a whole lot of hermeneutical gymnastics to try and make sense of it, or maybe we just settle for, Jesus was having a really off day that day when he told this story. I mean, come on, Jesus, commending the dishonest steward, that's going to be a stretch to preach. Most preachers probably skip over the details of the parable if they preach the parable at all, and they land on... Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. Whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. You cannot serve God and wealth. And therein lies the perfect setup for a stewardship sermon or a make you feel guilty about money and your love of money sermon. But that's not what you're going to get from me today. Today, I want to tell you that I totally get what Jesus is doing here. He's simply stating the truth. Life is not easy or straightforward or cut and dry or black and white, but it's simply gray and murky and mostly somewhere in between, right and wrong in that delicate dance of ethics. Some scholars label this this as the parable of the dishonest stewards, while others call it the parable of the shrewd manager. And that one word really makes a difference in how you view the story. Totally different takes on it. The parable of the dishonest manager and the parable of the shrewd manager. Dishonest is clear, not honest. Some might even go so far as to say he's a liar. But shrewd, well, that's a whole lot more palatable shrewd meaning having or showing sharp powers of judgment or astute. Some might even use the word clever. Now, if you have a real strong sense of right and wrong, then you might say there's no getting around this as wrong. You may remember my story about my dad asking me on the first day of school each year, Amy, do you know right from wrong? So the concept of right and wrong is pretty well drilled into the core of my being, and maybe that's why this parable doesn't sit so well with me. But as I've paid attention this week, I've realized maybe my sense of right and wrong isn't as strong as I like to pretend that it is, because I've caught myself several times cutting corners or turning a blind eye for some sense of a greater good Here's the best and most real example I can give you that relates to this praise of the dishonest, clever, shrewd manager. A few weeks ago, we handed out those $100 envelopes, and one person presented me with a dilemma. Well, it was a dilemma for her. It was a no-brainer for me. You see, her company matches employees' charitable contributions. So she wondered, was it right to take $100 given to her by the church and tell her company that she was donating $100 so that she could ask her company to match her gift? Hmm. Could she, with a clear conscience, Double the money. Hmm. You see, this parable makes you go... "Mm, mm, 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 mm." This parable makes you squirmy and squinty and a bit yucky feeling. And then you're presented with real-life scenarios that make you squirmy and squinty and a bit yucky feeling. I'd be curious your reactions. My reaction was, do it. You know, this deep sense of right and wrong that lives inside of me that I pretend to have. I've told you before on our trips to Cuba that I have no issue with bending the truth on the money that we take in and the supplies we deliver. There's some sense of righteous indignation that I claim in the face of our country's long-standing immoral embargo against our sister country that makes me so angry that I don't mind hiding cash in a money belt under my clothes and not admitting that I'm taking more money than is allowed to take in to give to our brothers and sisters at Resurrection Baptist Church in Carlos Rojas, Cuba. But every time I do it, it does make you go, hmm. You know, squirmy, squinty, a little yucky feeling. But somewhere deep down, it seems that Jesus might just praise those kinds of actions. This parable, as difficult and as troublesome as it is, seems to simply be naming the truth of this life that we live. Nothing is simple. Nothing is easy. Issues are complex and layered and the world is morally complicated and everyone is caught in those complications. The parable makes it clear that if you imagine your hands are always clean, then you've not been paying attention. Anyone who acts as if this is clear-cut by any stretch, well, they are being dishonest. I still have a hard time commending dishonesty that just doesn't seem right but cleverness oh cleverness my eyes and ears can perk up to clever and astute with a greater good in our sight and maybe Jesus is just trying to get us to think outside of the box maybe Jesus is trying to get us to take more risks maybe Jesus is trying to get us to think To calculate and consider the cost and measure it out and consider every angle, maybe especially with our money. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus sends out the 12, giving them tons of instructions for how to do this whole ministry thing. Proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near, he said. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. See, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Some translations say be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Knowing that the serpent has long been viewed as far back as the Garden of Eden as crafty, tricking the humans into doing the very one thing that God did not want them to do. And Jesus is conjuring that kind of image to his disciples as he sends them out. Be clever. Be crafty. Be shrewd. I'm sorry, Jesus. I cannot with a clear conscience promote dishonesty. But we could be more crafty and more clever, and more astute, and more shrewd, and more wise than we are, even in the dealings with our money. In the end, the question may just be, how clever are we, and is our cleverness for the right reasons of a greater good? We're all enmeshed in a system that is hard to understand. And this parable is an indicator that Jesus was acutely aware of the complications that make human life what it is. And just think, if Jesus could commend dishonest wealth, imagine what he would have to say about our honest cleverness. So let me commend to you honesty and cleverness. In a sermon preached at the Princeton Chapel, one preacher said parables were meant to be interpreted more allegorically than literally. Jesus told this parable while squared off against a room full of indignant scribes and Pharisees. It was his answer to their demand that he toe the line in the matters of the law. He tells them that the master commends the law-breaking servant for acting shrewdly. Perhaps Jesus himself is the shrewd steward because he's repeatedly cited by the religious authorities for his breaches, not just of the law, but of just decent behavior. While you could find him eating with despicable people. You could find him healing on the Sabbath. You could find Jesus ignoring rules of ritual cleanliness. And none of that strikes us as particularly offensive today. But then these things were scandalous. And Jesus played it off as clever and crafty and shrewd in an effort to include more and love better. So the end of the story the woman with the $100. She added 200 of her own dollars to the $100 that was given to her by the church and had her company match it. And like that, 100 became 600 to give to a worthy cause. Pretty clever, I'd say. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. So to those who are taking more envelopes today, it might do you well to ask, how might you be the most clever for some greater good this week? And how might this whole clever pay-it-forward thing inspire all of us to be more generous, more faithful, and more clever? Did I make anybody uncomfortable today? Clever in church? Yeah. Clever in church. May it be so. Amen.